With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Was the choice to leave leave this job of your own volition? Sort of. Uh, like I said, the shows were being canceled, but as they started downsizing, then I said to my um, to man- my manager, I said, you know what? Let me go. Like, let me, I'm not, I know people were fighting for those slots to stay. And I just said, you know what? Let me go. I'll, I'll go, I'll, I'll go down with you with the team because I, I, I'm having this kind of creative crisis right now. I don't know what I want to be doing and um, I should not be fighting for those slots. And she was like, okay. That sounds good. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go for that. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. My name is Eric Malinsky. I am the host of Imaginary Worlds, which is a podcast about science fiction and fantasy. Um, I also used to work at New York Public Radio, so my show is produced in that kind of NPR style. I always knew I wanted to study film, and I went to uh, a Wesleyan University in Connecticut, and I was a film major there. And then I, I went to make my senior thesis film and uh, it was kind of a disaster. I think that it's one thing to imagine a film in your head. It's another thing to actually, you know, have the skills it takes to really be a director. You know, you kind of need to have the skills to also be the general of a small army. And I just didn't have a lot of those skills. Um, and I kept thinking, you know, I, I could draw. And so I was like, oh, God, I, I, if only I could just draw this film. I love to draw. I love film. Perfect. I'll go into animation. And all my friends, all the film majors were all moving out to L.A. So I just kind of moved out there with them. Once I started getting really into animation, you know, I'm like, oh, these are my people. Like, you know, everyone's nerding out and geeking out. And like, I loved it. It was great. I absolutely loved it. I mean, you know, you're in L.A. I mean, it's animation. It's like this is a whole industry of people. So then I went to CalArts. And, you know, people like John Lasseter had gone to uh, Tim Burton, who was like my hero at that time. Everybody who runs Pixar now has gone to CalArts and many other kinds of people. So it seemed, you know, it's one of those things where I think that a lot of it comes down to realizing who you are and what you're good at. And I just think it takes a really long time. So like you, you, you were thinking about art, you were thinking about animation as as like paths that, that you wanted to go towards. So Klask and Chupo, you worked there, which worked closely with Nickelodeon. Yeah. Was this the image of like the art that you wanted to create? No, actually it's close. Um, my dream was to work at Pixar. Um, I wanted to be a story sketch artist at Pixar. And, um, but I was really unhappy as a storyboard artist. Like I loved making my films at Cal arts. I really felt like I was in my own, in my element, making these short films, but I was beginning to feel like I was on a factory floor a little bit with animation. Oh, wow. 
you know, somebody else writes the script. Somebody else comes up with the story. There's really not my characters or even close to it. All the choices have been made until it comes to me. I get the script, I get the voice track, and then I have to figure out the staging of it, you know? And then my storyboards are, those days were shipped to Korea. I remember there was this one moment that I suddenly felt like with all the things that I could do or, or wanted to do, I felt like I was at a gym and somebody just kept working out my left arm. You know, that's sort of how I felt. It was kind of like, just keep, keep working that left arm. And so then I started like thinking, well, maybe I'm going to try to come up with ideas for stories. And I even tried writing some Rugrats scripts and they were a little freaked out by like a storyboard artist saying that he wanted to write some Rugrats scripts because they have a writing team. And so then I tried, I show them the scripts I wrote, which in looking back were terrible. They're not really terrible, but so wrong for the Rugrats. They were pretty sad, actually, like sad, like they were sad Rugrats. Um... And they, I think they were almost relieved when they realized like they were like, shit, if this guy's scripts are good, what are we going to do? This is going to destroy our very regimented <laughs> system. They were like, oh, this guy's scripts aren't very good at all. Great. This is easy. Sorry, guys. Stay in your freaking cubicle. How do they, do they tell that to you? Yeah. They're just like, you have no idea. It was actually, they're working on All Grown Up, which was the, the spinoff series where the Rugrats were teenagers. That was what it was. And they're just like, the head writer is like, you have no idea. This is totally wrong. Like, you don't know what we're doing. This is totally the wrong tone. And it's true. It was looking back. It was completely wrong. It was yeah, like what I had done was hard to hear. Like you're kind of going out on a limb to create something new and to develop a new scale. And like you're kind of shit at this. Like, that, yeah, exactly. That I know. It was tough. I was. I was. It was tough. I was pretty bummed about it. And I was living just vicariously through public radio. I mean, there was no podcast back then, so I just listened obsessively to public radio all day long. Um, you know, and night long too, if it was, you know, if, if I was working into the night. When you were listening to public radio, what was it feeling that you felt you were missing in your job? There was so much more to the world than these cartoons. You know, I felt like these cartoons were also a very much a world for children, Hmm. you know, or family friendly and 9-11 and the Iraq war and all this stuff was going on that I was like really engaged in. I think often for artists, it's it's okay. let me channel these feelings into my work, you know, into my art. But then you're kind of stunted. How do you communicate these rough and heavy hitting topics? I had an improv group uh, that I was part of this improv class that was like a creative therapy. And uh, shit, I think on 9-11, we were there like that night. And I remember our teacher was always like, use this, you know, use everything, you know, never be afraid to go dark. And I was talking to my, my improv teacher about this at the time. You know, he was kind of like our creative guru. He recommended this book called The Artist's Way, which was by Julia Cameron, I think her name is. He said, you know, The Artist's Way is one of those things like What Color Is My Parachute, where you sort of, she gives you a lot of tests to take yourself to figure out what is, what is your creative medium? Like, you know you're creative, but what is, what is it you really want to do? What are you good at? And I remember when he said to me, was like, I will warn you, this book will change your life. Like... I, I will warn you that you may find that at the end of this process, you are living somewhere else, doing something totally different. Like once you start asking these deeper questions about what you really want to do, you're going to want to make changes. Was that true? Yeah, actually. Kind of led me here. Was the choice to leave this job of your own volition? Sort of. Uh, like I said, the shows were being canceled. And so it, as it kept downsizing and downsizing, 
I actually, if that hadn't happened, I don't know if I would have had the guts to leave because it had the golden handcuffs thing. I was being paid pretty well. But as they started downsizing, then I said to my my manager, I said, you know what? Let me go. Like, let me, I'm not, I know people were fighting for those slots to stay. And I just said, you know what? Let me go. I'll, I'll go, I'll, I'll go down with you with the team because I, I, I'm having this kind of creative crisis right now. I don't know what I want to be doing and um, I should not be fighting for those slots. And she was like, okay. Was that uh, scary to leave, you know, the, the security or was it more thrilling? No, it was liberating. Mm. I felt like, you know, I need some time to figure this out. And otherwise, you know, you always hear word like Powerpuff Girls is hiring or, you know, Futurama is hiring or Family Guy's hiring. And then, you know, you quickly rush and drop off your portfolio and then like suddenly you have another job. So it didn't feel like it was this thing that like I'll never do this again. So it felt kind of liberating that I was able to take some time. My parents were not very happy um, about this. <laughs> for sure. Parents always want the security for you. Yeah. And so as you're figuring out what you actually want to do, are you still listening to public radio? Oh, obsessively. Every minute of the day. It was my brother was the one who said to me, why don't you go into public radio? He's like, that's all you talk about is what you've heard. Because I remember This American Life came on when I was at CalArts. This is Chicago and Public Radio International. It's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Today's program. And I would just like walk around my house listening to it. I just love that style of storytelling so much. I listened in the car all the time. I listened at home. I listened when I was drawing. And that's my brother was just like, honestly, that, that to me also feels like a better fit for you. What did you think of when he said that? I thought it was pretty interesting. And there's this one show I was obsessed with called Studio 360 where I ended up working. Today on Studio 360. It was the hmm. highlight of my week was when Studio 360 would come on. At the time, the only weekly arts and culture show on public radio. And that's it for this week's show. This was the other moment I had, too. I went to Pixar with a bunch of friends of mine, and I was talking to a guy up there. I was talking about all my creative issues and how my dream was to work at Pixar, but I've, you know, I kind of don't like what I'm doing and da da da. And he said, you know, I hate to tell you this, but it's the same job. I mean, goes, you may be working on Toy Story 2 or 3 or something, and you'll be much happier with the material you're working at, but it's the same job. And he's like, if you're really unhappy right now at Klasky Chupo, I don't know how happy you'll be at Pixar. I mean, it's it's like, and he said, also, too, I don't know how, how good is your work going to be? You know, it's like, you know, we need to see somebody who's working on like Scooby-Doo and does incredible work on Scooby-Doo because they freaking love cartoons. He's like, if you're like, eh, I don't really, my work's okay because I wasn't that inspired, but I'm sure I'll, I'll, I'll do great if I work on a real, he's like, what if you work on a movie at Pixar you don't even like? What if you end up on a subject you don't like? He's like, you just have to love the work itself. And I, so that also made me think about whether I was in the right field as well. And then when my brother said that to me and he said, you know, you love public radio, I took that guy's advice and thought the same thing. I was like, well, what's the equivalent of public radio to me? Uh, This American Life would be the equivalent of Pixar at the time. And I thought to myself, if I go into public radio and I never end up on This American Life, would I feel like that was a life wasted? And I was like, no, because I think I would love the process of what I was doing. Because I feel like if I had spent my whole life in animation, never got to Pixar, I'd be like, what was the point of that? So how did you develop feelings towards sci-fi and fantasy? 
you know, I've been working, I, I started working, I was working at Studio 360 for years. And I even had a moment where they wanted me to work full time there that I, I basically feared having another situation of Klasky Chupo where I sort of found myself stuck. I wanted to be making things still. You know, I wanted to be creative to some extent. And I felt that if I was in the office, what I would be doing is really empowering the host and empowering reporters, being their editor. And I really wanted to be the person out there making the stuff. So I went freelance. So then I was like, well, what, what the hell would my, my podcast be about? How would it be any different than what I was doing? I think it was Julia Cameron, but it could have been somebody else I came across who said, like, what is your like, there's some things in do, you do in life that are your spinach or your broccoli. And then some things you do that are your ice cream sundae. Like, what's your ice cream sundae? You know, go towards that. And so that's what I thought about. I'm like, well, what's my ice cream sundae? And I thought, well, fantasy and sci-fi, definitely. I was like, well, what if I did like, what's every story that they would never prove at Studio 360 because there is no news hook. There's no point to there's no reason why they would do the story. But I'm just super interested in it. I suddenly had like 13, 14 ideas. Wow. So this is pouring out of you. <laughs> pouring out of me. And I remember looking at that list being like, holy shit, that's like a season of a podcast. And that's when I realized it. I was like, oh my God. And that actually is the first season of Imaginary Worlds. The first like... 13, 15 episodes or so were like almost every idea that I came up with on that list. I was really, I was still very afraid to do it. Why? To declare yourself a host was a big deal. WNYC had this very small group of people that they had deemed host worthy. And I was not one of them. So then to sort of declare that I, I feel like I could be a host is sort of a big deal. It's kind of like a lot of chutzpah to do that. Then uh, there's a woman named Andrea Salenzi who was an intern at Studio 360 and she launched her own show and it was really good. And I was like, Andrea launched her own show? I was like, that's so cool. And like, she was an intern after me. And I was like, wow, and you have your own show? And it was getting a lot of buzz. And I told her I was, I, I had an idea for a show and I was kind of afraid to do it. And she was just like, she's, she just said, do it. She said, the moment, yeah. once you do it, you're going to, you will not believe how long you had waited to do it. I mean, she's not afraid to start her own show. Yeah, um, so why should you be? Yeah, and she, and she said the same thing. She's like, yeah, if I'm, not, I'm not afraid. You should not be afraid. So you launched the show. What was the moment where you knew that you actually had something that people would listen to? It was a woman at WNYC who worked in the newsroom and I was talking to her. I was like, how the hell do I get people to know me? And she said, well, you know, why don't you email, um, you know, she knew the guy, this guy who worked at iTunes. She was like, why don't you email him and ask him? you know, for advice. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. So I emailed him and he was like, oh, your show's great. It's really good. Thanks for letting me know about it. And then they passed around among the staff and then I, w I popped up in the new and noteworthy. Wow. Yeah. And, but how else would I have known, you know, gotten that email? Uh, I mean, this is the great thing about when you are working in a field and you know people, they, people always say it's all about who you know. And I'm like, it's not, I think it's more about who you meet uh, than who you know. Then the numbers went way up. Uh, the numbers started going up and then everything started kind of happening from there. I had worked with Roman Mars because I'd already done two stories by then for him. He said, hey, you know, we're going on, uh, it's Thanksgiving's coming up. It's, you know, like we have an episode that's supposed to drop right around Thanksgiving. He said, you know, we'd love to put one of your episodes in there. It was the episode about superhero costume design. So that was huge too, um, being on 99PI as well. 
And then not long after that, started pitching myself around to studios or to podcasting networks. And then Panoply, which doesn't exist anymore, was the podcasting arm of Slate. Again, people I knew from WNYC who had, I just knew through just, just working there, some of them had gone to Panoply. And so they already knew who I was, you know, and they knew my work. And they say, well, we'll, we'll pick you up. You know, we'll take you on. And so I left WNYC and left Studio 360 and just said, I'm, I'm now going to be a full-time podcaster. Where are you today and where do you think the industry is today? It's, you know, the industry, there's so much corporate consolidation going on. So many Hollywood stars and have their own podcasts. Comedians, I don't mind as much. I think it's because comedians are so f- like podcasting is such a great medium for comedians. And from a podcast network standpoint, it's like you put some comics on, they're hilarious. You throw in some ads, you get a ton of listeners. I get it. It's the Hollywood stars that suck at this, <laughs> that get their own podcast. That's what really pisses me off. Then the tougher thing, too, is that the, the, these podcasting networks have gotten so big and everything's being swallowed up by something else. And so yeah. and then, you know, and I'm on the same network at that point with like Conan O'Brien. And it's like I'm not I'm not going to, you know, I'm a pretty I'm a very small fish in, a, in a, no. not even a big pond in an ocean at that point. But I am concerned about independent podcasters. It's really hard to stay afloat. But because it's so big and there's so much money going into it, like it also presents a lot of opportunities. So what are you most excited for, for the future of your show and, and the future of just the industry in general? I mean, I think with the industry, one of the things that I think is really great are the sort of the more boutique studios that get set up if they've got deep funding. Because that's, mm-hmm. that's another thing that's changed as well, is that you get something like LAS Studios, you know, out of KPCC, where they feel like, you know, too much of the media landscape is New York focused. And so, you know, I like that there's something like LAS Studios that is aiming also a lot of people of color and just trying to, like, just tell very different stories that reflect a very different kind of reality. When I listen to those shows, I literally feel like I'm back in L.A. again. It's just like it feel it sounds like L.A. I think that I used to be one of those people that had like five year plans or something like that. And I, I just feel like it's I'm always in a better space creatively when I'm not like, you know, well, I've decided the year 2026, you know, <laughs> and the artists that I knew at CalArts who were so process oriented and all that they're like, all I can tell you is right now I'm obsessed with hats or whatever. And this is all in like, I don't know what I'll be doing next year, but all I know is I can't get enough of hats. Like those people are always to me doing the most interesting work that they were just sort of like following this creative muse. And so that's kind of where I'm I'm going. And so I, I, I don't I don't know where the show is going to go in the future, but I kind of I like being in that place. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donovan. Our Chief of Staff and Operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Burkle, Matt Fernandez, Renee B. Cannon, Sophia Donner, Moral Lynch, Zoe Maddox, Ashley Jimenez, Michael Chung, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, Jake Wiley, Ibada Thrive, and Mecca Shelton. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen, with support from Abigail Azardia, 
Elise Caldwell, Jake Wiley, Jordan Ortiz, and Sanessa Gisley. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand, with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dang, Jonathan Wass, and Diana Marie Henderson. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.